Hi, uh, this is where with Exosocialism, by, we're reading Binding Chaos by Heather Marsh, and we're in Chapter 2, the second part, which is Human Rights Law. Currently, the world has not fought for individual human rights in large numbers since the end of World War II, which left us with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Those rights have been largely eroded, unnoticed by most of the world. Historically, a lack of awareness of violations to social contracts was both real and excusable, and the ability to organize and protest was severely hampered. That is no longer the case. Since the UDHR was written in 1948, it has been under relentless attack, as has every other documentation of rights before or since. Although the preamble clearly states the intent to strive by teaching and education to promote respect for these rights and freedoms and by progressive measures, national and international, to secure their universal and effective recognition and observance, both among the peoples of member states themselves and among the peoples of territories under their jurisdiction. Uh, quote unquote. That's uh, I have to say if there's a quotation. So that was a whole quotation from the text. The text, widely distributed in early years, is now rarely seen. The covenants adopted in 1966, law since 1976, billed as clarifying the UDHR and written in far more convoluted terms, are one of the most are one of the first significant examples of legal undermining, which, if the principles of the UDHR had been followed, would never have passed. For example, uh, I'm reading from the UDHR. UDHR Article 3, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Article 3 was completely negotiated by the covenants, which start by adding the word arbitrarily and then proceed to remove the right to life from everyone not under 18 or pregnant. Even this was disregarded by the law in several countries, most notably the United States. International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 6. 1. Every human being has the inherent right to life. This right shall be protected by law. No one shall be arbitrarily deprived of his life. Number 2. In countries which have not abolished the death penalty, sentence of death may be imposed only for the most serious crimes in accordance with the law in force at the time of the commission of the crime and not contrary to the provisions of the present covenant and to the convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide. This penalty can only be carried out pursuant to a final judgment rendered by a competent court. Number five, sentence of death shall not be imposed for crimes committed by persons below 18 years of age and shall not be carried out on pregnant women. UDHR Article 4. No one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Slavery in the slave trade shall be prohibited in all their forms. This was modified to separate forced or compulsory labor as somehow different from slavery or servitude, and allow prison labor, which has since become a thriving slave industry. It also includes enough vague generality to be very flexible in allowing any form of state slavery. International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights Article 8. Number one, no one shall be held in slavery. Slavery with the slave trade, slavery and the slave trade in all their forms shall be prohibited. Number two, no one shall be held in servitude. Number three, A, no one shall be required to perform forced or compulsory labor. B, paragraph three, A, shall not be held to preclude in countries where imprisonment with hard labor may be imposed as a punishment for a crime, the performance of hard labor in pursuance of a sentence to such punishment by a competent court. C. For the purpose of this paragraph, the term forced or compulsory labor shall not include I. Any work or service not referred to in subparagraph B. Normally required of a person who is under detention in consequence of a lawful order of 
court or of a person during conditional release from such detention. Uh, I, this is double I. Any service of a military character and in countries where con conscientious objection is recognized, any national service required by law of conscientious objectors. Uh, triple I. Any service exacted in cases of emergency or calamity threatening the life or well-being of the community. And number four, I-5. Any worker service which performs part of normal civil obligation. In case there's anything left out of the UDHR that may hinder a state from doing exactly as they please, it is made clear that the state may limit any of these rights solely for the purpose of promoting the general welfare in a democratic society, which instantly renders the entire body of human rights law. International Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, Article 4. The state's parties to the present covenant recognize that in the enjoyment of those rights provided by the state in conformity with the present covenant, the state may subject such rights only to such limitations as are determined by law, only insofar as this may be compatible with the nature of these rights and solely for the purpose of putting the general welfare in a democratic society. Next section, Building a New Society. Reading the 30 UDHR articles is highly recommended. Most people today are suspicious, and rightly so, of any document from the United Nations. But this was the first document, and as a product of its time, it is shockingly complete and beautiful in its simplicity. That is not to argue that it does not, does not need an update, but most of the updates suggested in the past detract by addition. The UDHR, while very improvable, is a model of how principles ought to be written in simple, pure, and universal terms upon which law can be based, with no vague, flowery generalities that require interpretation. The idea that only a lawyer can understand the law was created to disguise the undermining of the basic principles of society. In order for a social contract to be binding, the principles must be easily taught to anyone, including children. No law must ever deviate from the principles of the social contract. Therefore, law ought to be largely intuitive. It is evident from the above that a vigilant society must audit and indeed write all new laws to prevent the undermining of principles. Along with accessibility of the law, the inviolability of principles has also been under attack. A short, very short time ago, when the UDHR was written, principles were considered the foundations upon which everything must be built, as they are in every science and discipline. Someone said they were against your idea and principle. Your task of convincing them became far harder. You must now first convince them that either your argument fit their principle or their principle was wrong. If you succeeded at the latter, that person would have to rethink their values on everything, because morals and values were to be built upon core principles, as was the law. Today, if a politician says they are against something in principle, it means they have already agreed. Principles have been designated as niceties that we all appreciate in theory, but are impractical. This is an Orwellian attack on the structure of a society, which clears the path for every oxymoronic law which has followed. In order to stop the incessant flow of laws against the will of the people, core principles of society must be defined. When these principles are defined, it must be recognized that no law can ever be passed which con contradicts these principles. In order for order in order for society to be stable without representation and allow a new and better system of collaboration, principles must apply equally to everyone without exception. The law must be accessible for all, not only the wealthy. Currently, NGOs are required to fight for the rights of people in nature, but corporate rights are protected by their access to the expensive legal system. Legal remedies must be as immediate as possible as powerful interests can destroy lives just as surely by protracting a court case as they can by winning one.
The law must be intuitive, not up to the subject judge, subjective judgment of an archaic legal system. Members of a society need to know before committing an act what the repercussions of that act will be, and the law must be applied equally to all. This requires a far more automated and accessible system than is currently available in any country. The fact that the legal system has remained so archaic strongly suggests that it is meant to remain inaccessible and subjective as that is best serving the interests of those in power. The discouragement people often once faced for obtaining online medical advice, particularly from their peers, is greatly compounded for legal advice. This must change. People must Recreate the legal systems to work for them, and that requires direct involvement at every level in the creation and implementation of the laws. The law, more than any other part of society, must be transparent, accessible, equal, and created by and for the people. So I don't have my partner in crime with me, and but I like that this is where she's pulling out of um, representative and direct democracy, that that is not working either as a system that hasn't worked or isn't working communism no tried it didn't work and so now she's giving kind of a name to it and she's calling it collaborative democracy and one of the things that she uh gives an example of that well my interpretation of it she gives an example of is the a, a udhr let me get the universal declaration of human rights as a founding document for that process of a collaborative democracy in that the language is simple it's easily understood even a child can understand it it applies to everyone power isn't able to um, corrupt it by either rewriting it when they see fit or um, uh, I think it's convoluting it you can think of it this way and for whatever reason, when I read a legal document, I can understand it. It seems like English to me. I can figure it out. Uh, if I read an insurance, same thing with insurance. If I read, if I read uh, some form or um, document about insurance, now that's much harder for me to understand, and I don't understand it. And what she's saying, it's intentionally made that way. It's intentionally made convoluted and hard to understand, so that. You need a specialist. You now need a lawyer uh, that can help you with that. And lawyers, by and large, benefit larger corporations, people who can afford lawyers, richer people, elites. They can afford to get through the system. And we've seen this time and time again. When the 2008 crash happened, uh, they set up a fund to help people keep their houses, um, to not foreclose. But in the end, and this is under Obama, when, in the end, when they analyzed how that turned out, uh, they found out it was lawyers that benefited. They were the ones that took the most money because you needed one in order to get through any of the red tape in order to get the help, in order to not foreclose on your home. And ultimately, people still had their homes foreclosed on. So that didn't help at all. And then uh, same thing recently happened with the PPP, that for small businesses, you were supposed to be able to... Uh, get a loan to help you through this pandemic and uh, crisis and small business were supposed to be able to take advantage of this. And it turned out pretty quickly that they found out they weren't being able to. So because either they didn't have people that, you know, that's all they did. They could hire people to just handle the paperwork to get through the process or um, 
or richer companies uh, gobbled it up for no reason. There was plenty of scandals uh, to go around about who pocketed that money and took it. And that's exactly what she's pointing out, I think, on in this um, second part of the second chapter. Is that it's, it's done for a reason. It's not. Uh, it's done by design. It's not an accident. Uh, it's evolved this way to help either people who are rich um, game the system, or to help people who are in power stay in power. Um, it's not written for common people. It's not written for the average person of any persuasion. Um, it's not something that you can easily pick up and understand. And she's saying that all needs to change. And the UDHR is something that. Uh, could be a basis uh, to use this as a basis for that, for making that change. And the other thing is, is that uh, it applies to all. She makes that, she reiterates that several times. Um, and I think that's it. All right. And above all, I like that she says the law must be transparent uh, she talks a lot about social contracts. Um, you know, we have debates now whether you know there is a social contract, whether we have one, uh, whether that social contract, especially with particular groups in a society, have been broken, no longer exist. Um, and that's another important discussion that I think we need to have. Um, what is a social contract? Do we have one? Um, do we abide by it? Stop, you're just barking at the cats. And my dog's interrupted me, so there you go. Must be time. All right, so that's the end of chapter two, and we will be going on to, hopefully next week, society versus disassociation. And we'll be getting into that next week. All right, thanks. Have a great week.